John chapter 6, so we continue on. And uh, I've broken this into a lot of parts, so I didn't want to overwhelm you with uh, one huge chunk of John 6, but there's the common theme uh, that runs through this uh, of Christ as the bread of life. Um, We're just going to read 35 through 40 at this point and uh, talk about that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, I say to you rather, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Jesus, you indeed are the bread of life to us, the holy word of truth that saves us. Give us to feast and live with you above. Teach us to love the truth given to us in love. Send the Spirit now to us, that he may touch our eyes and make us see. Show us the truth concealed within your word, and in the scriptures revealed, help us to see you, the bread of life. Amen. Yesterday, I had the, I guess it's a privilege, I don't always consider it a privilege, memorial services, not my most favorite part of my responsibilities as a pastor, uh, particularly when I really don't, I didn't know the person who died and I don't know most of the people who were there. But the good part of it is I get to preach Christ, Christ, Christ. That's always good. It also forces you to think about mortality. That's not a bad thing. Too often we reject thinking about these things. The fact that we are going to die The fact that we're going to die should help us to focus on discerning between what is good, what is better, what is best. And there's a sense of that here, I think, in this text. Jesus, as we saw last week, was calling them to focus on that which was best. The bread that endures to eternal life, instead of focusing all of their energy on the bread that spoils. That there there are times in which we focus so much on our earthly existence that we lose sight of our eternal existence. And with that in mind, we come to this text. And what I want you to see from this text this morning, what the big idea is, is that Jesus can be trusted to satisfy and raise up all who come. Let's start with the idea that Christ satisfies the spiritual needs of those who come to him. 
He has been talking about this bread that endures, this bread from heaven, and he hasn't really declared what it is until now. Jesus clarifies for them what it is that is being offered when he says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the famous I am statements found within John's gospel. Bread of life. He is the one, in other words, who comes down from heaven, who has been sent down from heaven in order to feed God's people, to feed them something. And that something is himself. He does not come bearing something else to give, but he comes offering himself. Just as our earthly life needs food to survive, so spiritual life needs something to survive. And the idea that Jesus wants to convey to them and to you and to me is that you need Jesus like you need bread. Not at the memorial service. It was funny because the dessert was at the beginning of the line. I kind of like it that way. And there were these tiny squares and lemon bars. I love lemon bars. Raspberry bars with almonds on top. Okay. That's a bonus. Okay. That's not essential to survival. Okay. The real food is what's essential to survival. And what Jesus is saying is he's not an appetizer. He's not a dessert. He is the main thing. He is that without which you and I cannot survive spiritually. He is essential to our ongoing spiritual existence. Without him, there is no eternal life. It is all found in him, and he is the one who sustains it. And it's really, from our perspective, perhaps an odd thing that he would say this. I like what Calvin says. For when we learn that Christ is the bread by which our souls must be fed, this penetrates more deeply into our hearts than if Christ simply said, he is our life. Jesus is speaking not to rich people who have refrigerators and, like if you go to my house, an extra freezer full of food to sustain them for weeks. He's speaking to people who live day by day. They understand the necessity of bread. That is something that must be had every day, that must be gotten every day. And Jesus is saying, I give myself to you every day to sustain you each and every day. Jesus continues with these parallel statements that we might understand. Whoever comes, we sang a lot of songs this morning that have that idea of we come, O Christ, to you. Jesus, I come. This idea of coming to Christ. Whoever comes to me, parallel with whoever believes in me. So that we might understand that Coming to Christ is the same thing as believing in Christ. And believing is first of all being persuaded that what he says about himself and what he says about what he does is true and is necessary. And in being persuaded, 
you then entrust yourself. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that is something about which we must be persuaded is true about him. That he is the only one that can sustain us unto eternal life. And then entrust ourselves into his loving care. That's what it means to come to him, to believe in him, to entrust ourselves into him as though there is nothing else that we need. Both the coming and the believing imply this ongoing action. It's, it's not you come once or you believe once, you've walked the aisle, you raised a hand, you filled up the little card and it's done. But there's an idea here in both of these things of the one who keeps coming. The one who keeps believing. This is the one that Jesus has in mind. Not the momentary fling with Jesus, but the one who entrusts everything to Jesus and keeps entrusting everything to Jesus. He speaks about hunger. He speaks about thirst. Things that these people would be familiar with particularly the ones who sat on the side of the hill the day before without food to eat. There's a restlessness that, we've, that is there, that is present. And Augustine reminds you and I, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. People are restless. They're going to continue to be restless until they come to him as an answer for their hunger, as they entrust themselves to him as an answer to their thirst, to their longing. Both of these things, thirst and longing, really have to do with, sorry, not thirst and longing, th hunger and thirst, with an intense recognition of need. Okay. We tend not to think about, when we think about hunger, it's a little different than they, how they probably think about hunger. Okay, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But let's think of the promises that he gives here first. He says that the one who comes to me shall not hunger. This is based on the grammar, which you don't need to know. His initial satisfaction of our spiritual need. There's not going to be any more craving. Because now we will have the food that we need. The food that will not perish. The food that will not rot and spoil. For Christ is in the heavens where nothing can destroy him. Where nothing can undermine him or make him less valuable. And so there's this idea that our initial hunger that restlessness that we had, which is, is met, and we find rest in Christ alone. But then he makes a promise about the future. Shall never thirst. It's kind of an odd pairing when you think about bread, isn't it? If you believe in me, you'll never thirst on the bread of life. Bread often makes me thirsty. <laughs> Why? What is this? It's an odd pairing. 
But again, it's this idea of this intense longing for God. And we see this in many passages in the Old Testament. I can think of three Psalms. You've probably got one reference there. But Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63. Matthew Ward has a nice song written based on this that I wish I could find music for. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then Psalm 143. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. It's sort of like California right now. Three years of drought. Well, Tucson, Arizona. Usually around late May, early June, before the monsoon season really kicks in. The thirstiness. This picture of intense longing. And Jesus says, I'm going to meet these longings. You will never again experience these longings precisely because I have endured these longings for you. In the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the first temptation that came to him was when the evil one, the devil, had said to him, if you are the son of God, since you're so hungry, by the way, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8, which we read earlier, when he said, the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so our hunger and thirst are really about something different than we usually think they are. They're indicating our need for Christ, not for whatever we think we're hungry for, thirsty for. Not only that, but on the cross, Christ was thirsty for us, for our sake, for our benefit. He endured these things as part of his work of salvation for us. Now, does that mean that the Christian will never feel a sense of God's absence? Does that mean that a Christian will never feel spiritually hungry or spiritually thirsty? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? I don't think so. But let's go back to our experience of hunger versus probably their experience of hunger. When you and I are hungry, it's usually simply because we've skipped a meal. I'm notorious for wanting to skip breakfast, okay? My wife doesn't let me do that often enough, okay? I like to skip breakfast. Not, I don't like that meal, except for bacon, okay? But, you know, our hunger is sort of a mild hunger. It might, there might be some pain, you know, pangs in there. Your stomach might groil, all that kind of stuff. But it's not the same thing as haven't eaten in four days or you've barely eaten in four days the non-christian is like the person who hasn't eaten or barely eaten in four days the christian is more like the person who didn't have a very satisfying meal there might be some hunger but it's not craving it's not 
sort of the sense of desperateness. We're not to be characterized by sort of that thirst and hunger craving that threatens to destroy us. But when we do experience it, it's probably an indication that we have taken our eyes off Christ and we're pursuing something else instead of drawing near to him. Not in an ultimate sense, but in a secondary sense. Okay, again, that warning that we, we heard, hopefully, in Deuteronomy 8, if you were paying attention. That when you get filled, that your heart might be lifted up. We talked about this last week. Pride happens, and we begin to forget God. And so the hunger reminds us, don't forget him. Don't forget him. You need him. These things that you're seeking your life in in this world will not satisfy. They will not. Because it will pass through the body and be done. So, Christ offers himself to us to satisfy our spiritual needs for the rest of our lives. Secondly, let us see that Christ keeps those who come to him. Now, Jesus changes his tack a little bit. He addresses them. He was talking about himself, and now he goes back to them. And he says, you don't come. You don't believe. Despite the fact that you have seen the signs, despite the fact you have heard my teaching, you don't come. Meaning, you don't believe. Why didn't they believe? Let's move it away from them. Let's get it more, more, perhaps, up close and personal. Children can grow up in the very same family, in the very same church, and not all of them come to Christ. I, you know, why am I a Christian? And I'm it in my family. Not, you know, them back there, you know, but, like, you know, my brothers. <laughs> yeah, Amy, really not a Christian. No. <laughs> but my brothers, my parents, I'm it at least at this point, by the grace of God. Why is it that some people hearing the same message receive it and some do not? Some of us experience what Peter talks about in the first chapter of his letter. Remember, these people saw him. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So why is it that some experience that and some who have so much more benefit or advantage don't? Jesus explains this with one of these hard sayings that's in the Bible. The Bible is full of them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Coming to Christ is rooted in the giving of the Father. In other words, election. The Reformed doctrine of predestination that makes some people uncomfortable but it's right here. The only reason that some come 
is because they have been given to Christ by the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, let us not think that election is a cold thing. Some people sort of view it that way, you know, because we talk about unconditional election, people think it's arbitrary election, like God just, you know, there's a big box and everybody's name is in it, you know, kind of like a Christmas party for the, um, you know, Yankee swap thing or whatever, and, you know, he just reaches in and pulls out a handful of names and dumps them down and hey, let's get a couple more handfuls and oh, these are the people that are saved, he just kind of plucked them randomly out of there and that's not election, okay, but what we do see about election is that it is essentially a gift from the Father to His Son. It is rooted in His love for His Son. And therefore, it should be an amazing thing to us. It should astound us. It's a gift. Every father loves to give his sons gifts. Dads, you know this, right? There are times when we ponder what it is we should get our children. And sometimes, eventually, something catches our eye. One of those things caught our eye last year for Christmas for Eli. A remote-controlled helicopter. I was so excited. I know Eli was going to love this gift. You know? And he did. He would walk around, Dad, copter. Dad, copter. It's like, not now, son. <laughs> we need a field. <laughs> because this is inevitably going to crash. And I don't want it to crash on the pavement and get broken into 25 pieces. It may say it's unbreakable, but I don't believe it. Okay? <sighs> the disappointment in realizing this thing doesn't work right. <laughs> that you'd have to kind of, you can steer it like you're supposed to steer it. Something's wrong and you have to chase after it. In other words, otherwise it's going to go, you know, 20 feet up in the air, go about 30 feet and crash to the earth. That was all it did. But you know what? He still loves that thing. He walks around the house with it. He's still, he's still pleased with it. And while I'm disappointed it's not doing all that it's supposed to do, I delight in the fact that I gave a gift to my son and he loves it. Now the church doesn't always act like it's supposed to act. But the father delights in giving the church to his son, and the son delights in receiving that gift. And so when another member of that gift comes to Jesus, there is delight in heaven and there is delight in the heart of the son as well as to the father. Now this is not the only place that speaks of this election, this idea of this. We read about it briefly in Acts 13. Perhaps you may have missed it in all of that. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's where it is. And as many as were appointed, a.k.a. elected, to eternal life, believed. It's not they believed and then God ratified it. They were appointed to eternal life and that results in them believing. We see this as well, the warmth of it in Ephesians chapter 1, even as he chose us, not, not just randomly, so to speak, but also there's in him, in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And so there it is. Before the foundations of the world, it's in Christ, but also in love unto adoption as sons. He brings us into the family through his son, the eternal one. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't, some people get really, don't understand this at all, because I came to an understanding of the doctrine of election after I became a Christian, which is really so supposed to happen. But some people kind of agonize over this. Am I elect? Am I elect? Am I elect? Okay, there's no secret sign, people. There's no little E tattooed on the back of your head that you can't see because you can't get the mirror there or anything like that. It's not, in the, it's not on the sole of your foot, you know. There's nothing like that. How do you know you're elect? Have you come to him? Because if you haven't come to him, well, sorry, if you have come to him, then it's most likely you're elect. If you haven't, there's still time. Maybe, maybe God hasn't appointed that time yet, or the appointed time hasn't come yet. Okay? But the, the focus is on come, believe. There's a great promise that Jesus holds out for those who come to him. A, a promise that speaks of our security in Christ, which I don't really like that phrase because some people use that in a negative, a, a bad way. In, I think in an accurate way is probably a better way to put it. That's why I prefer per, uh, preservation. Those who come to me, I will never cast out. They're given to him. They then come to him, and Jesus does not cast them out this football season. And this word basically means to throw out like a pass or something else like that, or like trash. It has the idea also of banishment, rejection, someone who is removed from the family. I have three kids who spent time in orphanages. And sometimes they never lose that fear of going back. I have one who wasn't in an orphanage, and sometimes she has the fear of going to one. Like, we'll be so mad one day. Off to you. No. We keep reminding her, you belong to us. You're not leaving until it's time when God says it's, you're ready to leave. There is a, a security as he keeps us those who come are not cast out. There is no sin that is so great that he wants to toss them outside. His grace is sufficient. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So none who sincerely come, who are in Christ by the Spirit and by faith, they're no longer condemned. They have life. Thomas Watson has a sentence that I think we need to remember. I think I might stick it in our par uh, before our pardon, gospel pardon thing in our liturgy. The sins of the wicked anger God, but the sins of professing Christians grieve him. Doesn't mean our sin doesn't matter to God, but he responds to it in a different way than to those who are outside of Christ. It saddens him but he longs to draw us near. That's different. Jesus says a second one. In addition to, I will never cast them out, he also says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Now, 
That sounds like this. That's translated as, as sort of a passive kind of thing, which is the secondary meaning. You can you know, lose something. You know, Eli could lose the helicopter. He's a boy. He could forget where he put it and just keep going on with life and then realize, where's my helicopter? Dad, copter, where? You know? Or last night, I went to walk my dog. It was late. I went to where I left my mag light, and it's gone. I still don't know where my mag light is. I'm sure someone in the house knows where it is. Amy. Um. <laughs> See, she knows where it is. She knows where it is. It was cluttering a horizontal space. So it moved. So, but, you know, that, that, that's, I lost it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? The primary meaning of this word is more active. To destroy. To consign to death. And I think the parallelism with the casting out has that idea that those who come to me, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to consign them to death. The condemnation is done. The freedom of the gospel. It's not just Jesus might not, you know, Jesus is promising he won't forget where you are. But he will always accept those that the Father has given him. He will always embrace those that the Father has given him. Have you come? If you have, be assured that Jesus will not go back on the promise that is sealed in his blood. Christ promises to keep all who come as part of the family of God. Third thing. See, it gets better even. Christ will raise up all that the Father gives him. He says again, I have come down. Just in case you forgot about that from last week, or the week before, or how many times Jesus has said this, and he's going to keep saying it. He comes down, or he came down from heaven. His heavenly origin is essential in understanding this. But he recognizes, or he wants us to remember, that he came down to do the will of him who sent me. He didn't come down to do his own will, to fulfill his own purposes, but he says, I've come to fulfill the Father's will and purposes. Jesus has a sense of mission. It's not, hey, I've been sent here to earth. Let's have fun. I'm sure he had fun. But he focused on why he came. It's what drove him. It was the Father, we see in verse 40, who sent him. Jesus is the faithful and obedient son that Adam wasn't. It's kind of odd. In Luke's gospel, in the genealogy, it says, Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the son that fulfills the Father's will. Adam is the son who failed to fulfill the Father's will. And all of us who are born in Adam are part of that legacy until God places us in Christ and we experience the blessing of his obedience, not ours. So, his will regarded those that the Father gave to him, those who he says, those who look, the one who looks on the Son. And so it's not just 
this group. God gave a group, but God also chose the individuals in the group. There's some people who think, oh yeah, divine election. God chose the church. Whatever, whoever finds themselves in Jesus finds themselves select. No. <laughs> the particular individuals as well as the church. The one who looks to the Son, who beholds the Son, who considers the Son, and therefore then is persuaded by the Son. Why is it that these people had not? Let's go back to that for a second, because I wanted to wait on this until we kind of get there. There's something more than their pride at work. Second Corinthians 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when you were outside of Christ, your eyes were blinded not just by your pride, but also by Satan. So though Jesus was all around you, and though for these people right in front of them, couldn't see his glory. You know, it's like those silly pictures you see on the internet, or if you have a psychology class, which do you see? The old woman or the young woman? Or the one that going around, can you see the horse? They don't see what's in the picture when it comes to the glory of Jesus Christ, because their eyes are blinded. But the idea is not that they throw off the blinding of Satan, but Paul says, the God who said, let there be light, shined his light in your hearts. He removes the blindness so that we can see the glory of Jesus and believe. That's great news. Very great news. And so those not given to him remain blinded by the evil one, and they cannot see his grace and his glory. But those who look upon him, he says, will not be lost. They are preserved through this earthly life into eternal life, but even more, they will be raised on the last day, resurrection. And he repeats that twice. Two times he says this. We ought to get this. Verily, verily. Okay? It's one of those things. We need to understand this. We need to grasp this. I don't know why, well, I probably know why. Like, people who struggle with addiction, what do they need to know? Part of what they need to know is that Jesus is greater. And one of the ways that Jesus is greater is that he gives eternal life when that thing that you're addicted to or or idolatrous toward ain't going to give you life. It might give you pleasure for a little while, and that's it. It always wants more, more, more from you. But Jesus says, I will continue to give you more. Not only that, Jesus will raise us from the dead. That thing that we seek in addiction will not raise us from the dead. It makes us dead. And so we need to remember that Christ is greater. So we can walk away from those things that try to entangle our hearts whether it's food, money, sex, whatever it is. Jesus is greater. 
Only he died on the cross for you. Only he can raise you from the dead. Not those things that you might seek to get life from. And this new life that we have, this resurrected life that we will experience in the future, we we should know this, that this life is one in which we will not hunger and thirst anymore at all, period. We will be fully satisfied in Christ. The picture of the new heavens and the new earth includes the tree of life in Revelation 21. In Revelation 22, we see this, the bride and the spirit say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, alluding to Isaiah 55. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The river of life flows from the throne of God through the new Jerusalem. And we can drink freely. A tree of life from which we were cut off when Adam was in, he couldn't go back because there was the angel with the, the flaming sword. Gone. We can eat freely. We will not thirst. We will not hunger in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we need to remember when we feel the pull of sin. Jesus is trying to clarify things for these people who have come looking for him in order to find more food. What they need to be satisfied in life is Christ himself. They need to seek Christ like bread. Or as one said, grace like chocolate. In this context, Jesus lays out the reality of election and the preservation of the saints to humble and comfort those who become persuaded that Jesus' offer is true, valid. Jesus offers us more than meeting our spiritual needs in this life, but also to raise us up on the last day and to satisfy us in himself forever. Is this the gospel you live or are seeking to live? Is this the gospel that you give? Let's pray. Father, I ask that indeed you would just work so that our hearts would be more consumed by this message than wanting to go home and watch football or go out for a really good meal. That indeed, this great Jesus, who is the bread of life, who is Jacob's ladder, who is the son of man, who is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that that Jesus would be so persuasive to us that we would continually entrust ourselves to him and not just for eternal life, but for this life. So move in us, Father, so that those around us would know There's something different going on there. That you might receive glory and honor because of what you do in us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.